Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jew3 Project Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project. And if you have been keeping up with Jew3, you know that um, every now and Every now and again, we'll have a special segment called At the Heart of Jude 3. And this is part three. The first part was my story. The second part was um, Cam Trick's story. And the third, this third part is called The Charismatic Apologist. And it's going to be a conversation between me and uh, my special guest, uh, the Reverend Doctor. He's not really a doctor. Uh, John <laughs> Daniels. Welcome, hey, John. Hey, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be a guest today. Yes. So, um, yeah, for those who don't know who you are, tell them a little bit about yourself. Yeah, um, I'm Pastor John Daniels. I pastor a church in East Orlando, uh, roughly about a mile and a half from the University of Central Florida in Orlando, uh, called The Outpouring. And so we are a one-year-old church plant, um, and and that's pretty much it, man. I'm, I got an opportunity to pastor a, a great group of people and build uh, build a church here in the uh, Central Florida area. And so um, that's kind of the gist of who I am. I'm pretty sure we'll get more uh, into it during our dialogue. But let me say this before we move forward. I just want to say this to you, Lisa, like I think that what you're doing with the Jew 3 Project is absolutely uh, amazing. I think that it is so necessary in the climate and culture in which we live in. And so I'm a fan of the show. I've listened to quite a few of the podcasts um, and I would recommend it to anybody else. But uh, I think that you are a forerunner in the apologetic movement, especially as it relates to uh, the African-American experience. And so I just want to commend you on this great ministry and to keep going. And I think that uh, so many more doors are going to open for you because this is so needed uh, in the time that we live in. Awesome. Thank you for uh, that. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, so the reason I want to do part four, I mean, not part four, I'm skipping part three. The reason I want to do part three is because um, one, my background is uh, very diverse when it comes to church apologetics. And um, one of the things as it relates to um, my background is I come from a charismatic background. And so um, I get a lot of, oh, how you sound and come from a charismatic background. Uh, so I guess in a sense, I can't, I kind of am a charismatic apologist because there's this presupposition amongst many that those who were raised in the charismatic movement aren't necessarily biblically astute or, right. uh, theologically sound. Um, but I always tell people that, um, my, my father, um, even though our church is more non-denominational charismatic is not one it's already have to, always have to preface it like that but um it's we always had uh he was more of an expository teacher um right it was more it was probably 75 percent expository 25 percent topical um i learned the bible 
Um, so there's all these presuppositions. He went to Bible college. There's these, you know, kind of stereotypes that I think that kind of need to be dealt with. And that's one of the reasons why I want to have this conversation because I have a passion now. Don't get me wrong. I've seen the bad in the movement, so I'm not naive to it. Um, but within the movement, there are solid people. And so if you go to church on TV, which many people who develop these caricatures do, or just Google people that have a lot of YouTube followers or listens, you might have a bad view of the charismatic movement. Uh, So we just want to deal with that. And uh, when I met John, we share a similar background and a similar passion. And I thought it would be good for us to have the conversation on Jude 3. So John, what was your uh, background as it relates to? I'll take it it even further back than uh, my origins uh, within the charismatic movement. Uh, Before that, I was uh, reared in a uh, AME denomination. Mm -hmm. And so um, I grew up AME all the way until I left for college. So the first 18 years of my life um, was in AME church. And so the charismatic experience was introduced to me uh, when I got to college. And so um, it was eye-opening for me. I'd never experienced it before. Um, but I'll, I'll say this, and it's easy for us to look at the charismatic movement and see the caricatures that we see on TV or, or on the Internet or what have you um, and make broad, sweeping assumptions regarding the charismatic movement. And so not to say that what they see, some of it isn't true, uh, because I've experienced it as well, um, but I'll be honest, uh, my love and my passion for Jesus, my true salvation experience personally, um, came within a charismatic church. And so I, I made that statement uh, one evening uh, in a seminary class, and everybody looked at me <laughs> like I cursed. <laughs> And so um, the passion that I have for the Word of God, the passion I have for, for God, was really birthed um, when I was in a charismatic church. And so oddly enough, the passion was so deep on the inside of me um, from my charismatic church experience that I went out and sought seminary. <laughs> and so in God's sovereignty the seminary that I found was reformed. Mm-hmm. And so now I have this duality where I have this charismatic experience, but my learning, the, the lion's share of what I'm learning um, is now from a reformed perspective. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't want to throw either baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to keep both. Mm-hmm. And so I think, um, I think my experiences um, my experience in the charismatic church has been somewhat good. Um, I've seen uh, the bad side of it, the negative side of it, uh, the same stuff that people see on TV. Um, I've seen that, but I still wouldn't say it's all bad. Mm-hmm. I still believe that there are some solid teaching there. there. There are some who are committed to teaching sound doctrine and teaching the full counsel of God. And so I get that some experiences um, are different than others, but for me, I've I've experienced both sides uh, of the equation within the charismatic movement, and that kind of shaped the development of your church, the outpouring. Correct. Absolutely, it, it absolutely shaped uh, 
shaped the vision of the church where I wanted to have the best of both. I didn't want to um, be void of the spirit, but at the same time, I did want to uphold um, the authority of scripture at the same time. I wanted to marry the two. I, I believe you could have, I believe you personally have both and that you don't have to have one or the other, but you can have both. And so that did shape my vision for the ministry that, that I have now. That's good, because I think a lot of people don't understand the both and concept. Russell Moore just posted a blog of the things he learned in 20 years of ministry. And he said one of the issues for him is that when he comes, there's in his personal understanding of theology and his personal study. He usually errs when he looks at things at either or. And really, a lot of times it's both and. And I think in this right. case, it is a both and. And, and so if you see it bad, if you see it done poorly, the, what we tend to do is say, well, we go to the other end, um, because we're pendulum people and we can't, um, sometimes we are so black and white that we can't, um, operate in shades of gray. Um, don't get me wrong. Some, some issues in scripture, a lot of issues in scripture are black and white, but when it comes to marrying, um, um, the two experience, the charismatic experience and um, the reformed experience it's, it's possible to have both. So, right. I think, and, and as you're speaking, I, something I saw this morning um, and, and I think those in the charismatic movement who do uphold scripture, uh, we have to be uh, more intentional as, as it relates to um showing that or displaying that as opposed to letting uh, um, the, the opposite end of the spectrum where you see the caricatures, um, where they get all of the exposure. And so this morning, there's a popular cultural website that shows video content of just different things or whatever. It's a very popular site, um, but I won't, I won't mention the name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but the first, the first video that I see, this is not a Christian site. It's not, it's, it's not Christian at all. And the first video I see, um, the first content that they uploaded today was a video of two uh, very large charismatic figures, and they were explaining the necessity um, of why they needed to have a jet for their ministry. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not I'm not here to knock that or say that that's unnecessary. I'm not here to say that uh, that's necessarily a bad thing, but I can see where the opinions can be formed that that is all that the charismatic movement is about. And so I think that those who uphold scripture, those who teach sound doctrine, they don't get the exposure necessarily as those who are a little bit more. Um, I guess you could say outlandish for lack of better better terminology. Mm-hmm. And so I think we have to do a better job of showing and displaying those who, who do teach, uh, who do teach solid doctrine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's, but I, I guess uh, um, one of the issues is that the more money you have, the more exposure you get. Uh, so <laughs> it's hard that's kind true. of to um, expose people to to ministries that a lot of sometimes sound biblical preachers aren't online. 
as far as they don't have right. their sermons posted online. So you really have to not with any, any sect of Christianity, not, not paint with a broad brush because even within right. sex, in sects of Christianity, there's no, their people are different. You look at Southern Baptists. It, it, if you go to any Southern Baptist church there, some, some of them are going to be drastically different. Um, same within church of God in Christ, uh, same within, um, PAW, um, same within, um, church of God by faith, um, same within church of God, there's diversity even within these sects. So what you see on TV and, um, pastor Charles said it when he was on, he was like, you can't go to church on TV and YouTube and, and, and make definitive claims about a certain group of people. Um, because you'll, that is correct. You'll always, and, and, and people usually post negative, they post the negatives more than they do the positives. So you You're have to absolutely right. consider that and, and think of right. it. But, but Go ahead. I'm sorry. The negative, the negative typically is for the shock value. Mm-hmm. And, and so if I'm not a believer and I see this video that more uh, this morning, then I'm absolutely like staying away from it. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Every, I guess you could say every sect of Christianity is different, but I'm not. And I think, I think the diversity and the differences are good. Mm-hmm. I think, I think, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because I think um, people have different personalities. People have different way of seeing things. And I think that it's good that we have different sects, but I just think that we should also, our core should be, should be somewhat similar. Mm-hmm. As far as it relates to doctrine of, of, of scripture. I, I definitely agree. I definitely agree. Um, one of the ideas um, that I want to kind of shift gears here, um, considering both of our background and our experience within the charismatic movement, both of us have, you know, experience in the charismatic movement, but we both went to seminary. I went to Liberty. You went to RTS reform theological seminary. Um, right. What, uh, this idea in, in a lot of charismatic circles that seminary is cemetery. I'm sure you've heard it. I, I have heard it a thousand times. <laughs> well, what do you think about that? Honestly, for me, and this is just my particular experience, um, my, my seminary experience for me validated what I, what I believe. My convictions in seminary actually were strengthened um, as opposed to I didn't I wasn't left wanting in in a sense where I had doubts about what it what it was that I believed. Now I know for many when you hear it, sometimes people leave seminary and they have more questions than they have answers. And I and I understand and I can see how that could happen, but for me, um, I don't know if it was just my experience but my my desire, my belief, my conviction for the Word of God was strengthened in seminary more than anything. Mm-hmm. And so that really fueled me. Um, it fueled me more than anything else that I've experienced. And so it gave me a hunger to search for the truth even more. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it was ever a doubt in my mind where I had that moment in seminary where I was like, man, do I really believe this? Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if it's because of the seminary that I I attend or if it's um, I don't know if that was the case or that I just had it made up in my mind before I got there that nothing was going to 
change what I believe. Mm-hmm. And so for me, seminary definitely wasn't cemetery. I, I love it. I enjoyed learning. I enjoyed the teaching. It opened my eyes to so many different perspectives and different scholars and being able to think critically as it relates to the Bible and, and, and biblical text. And so for me, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't cemetery. It, it was, it was life giving for me. Mm-hmm. So what was your, what was your experience? Like, was that the same for you or was it, or, or was it the opposite? Well, I know a lot of people who ascribe to that, um, thought that seminary is cemetery. And I think, um, what I've come to realize is that when, um, historically, as far as the African-American community, we weren't allowed in conservative, um, conservative institutions, um, and for seminary for, for a long time. And so the alternative was more of a mainline, um, more liberal, um, seminary experience and um when you look at some of the people who have went to more mainline liberal institutions um their um ideology as it relates to the authority of scripture um is there what we would what uh we talked about in our old testament class they're um minimalists in in this and so in that concept, you do kind of, it does become a place where your faith is lost in a sense. The, the orthodoxy orth- yes. is, is lost. Um, so I think when we talk about it, we have to give a little bit of grace for understanding the historical background and why um, even the conservative movement and their, um, I guess, this idea of white privilege and them not allowing African-Americans led and contributed to this idea that seminary is cemetery. Um, I think that's um, one of the things many people miss. I I absolutely and wholeheartedly agree with that because um, just looking back or looking at my seminary experience, um, most of the theologians, the scholars that we read or that we learned about, none of them came from the African-American context. Mm-hmm. And so even even in class, nothing is necessarily looked at from the context of a black the black experience. Mm-hmm. And so for me as a pastor to a to a congregation who at this at this juncture is predominantly black, when I look at the scripture, I can't look at it necessarily through the lens of and, and I'm going to say this, and I'll probably get uh, raked across the coals from my from my seminarians. Uh, I can't necessarily preach it from the lens of John Calvin. Mm-hmm. That that won't necessarily work for the people that I'm preaching to. So I have to be able to look at it critically, but also see it through the lens of someone who is young, through the lens of someone who has uh, African American experience. And that's kind of the way I have to look at it. But I do understand the historical um, significance of African-Americans not being allowed to attend your more conservative seminaries. And so that makes all the sense in the world to me. And, and I, I'm thankfully I was able to go to 
conservative seminary where um, they upheld the inerrancy of Scripture and um, the teaching was, was so solid and so rich and so profound and it wasn't necessarily liberal teaching, um, and I, which I think can be quite dangerous to, to our faith, to be, be quite honest with you. Mm-hmm. Um, now, one of the things that the pushbacks that we or the challenges that come along with the the authority of scripture within the charismatic movement is uh, the strong emphasis in some sects, because not all charismatic movements have a strong they believe in the um, the gifts of the spirit, but they don't have necessarily have a strong emphasis on. Pro- I want to kind of diminish that caricature as well. Um, I, I right. know a lot of charismatic churches that don't really have people prophesying at all. So they believe that it it's it's a gift that is still operating in this day, but a, people might not necessarily be using it within their church. Um so I want to dis- diminish that kind of myth. Um but within the charismatic movement in some sects there's a high emphasis on prophecy. And yes, the is. emphasis on prophecy becomes dangerous because a lot of times it overrides um, the authority of scripture. And so yes, the prophetic word has more weight than the scripture. Yeah, the scripture. And it's kind of like what, what the oral tradition in Catholicism and, and the authority of scripture in Catholicism. You, there's the, the, the problem came and that's why Martin Luther had the, that that was what, you know, kind of sparked the reformation because people were putting, um, you know, oral, tr- their, their tradition, ideas and right, tradition on, on the same playing field. Yeah. Right. And so I see that in, right. in Pentecostalism and, and some sex in, in Pentecostalism, charismatic movement in some sex. So, um, there's this tension there. Um, have you seen that same thing? I've had this argument, uh, numbers of times with people. Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so here, here's my perspective on the prophetic. And I, I'm, I'm not going deep into this because I don't want to proclaim to be an uh, expert in, 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 in the prophetic movement. I'm not. Not in the least bit. Um, but my conservative reform brothers would say this, that any preacher who gets up in a pulpit on a Sunday morning is preaching prophetically. Mm-hmm. They would say that because we preach a second com- the second coming of our Savior. Mm-hmm. And so we preach one who is to come again. And so that is prophetic in itself because it's something that is going to happen. And so he is coming back again, and we and we believe that wholeheartedly. We know that, mm-hmm. and so that is a prophetic message in itself, because we're, in essence, warning people um, about Christ who's coming back as Savior, but he's also coming back as the Judge. Mm-hmm. And so anybody who preaches Scripture is preaching a prophetic message. Mm-hmm. The problem in lies where. Um, the prophetic goes off the rail of scripture and it goes into um, what they would, I guess what some would deem as 
revelation or, or word of knowledge or, or things of that nature. And I'm not knocking it. I'm not saying that it, 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 it's not true. But what I'm saying is we have to be careful about it. Mm-hmm. Um, from my own personal experience, and I won't speak on anybody else's experience. I'll speak on my own personal experience. And this is not to knock anybody. This is not to knock those who believe strongly in the prophetic. But I've, I've been a part of something where I've, I've gotten, quote unquote, a word, and mm-hmm. it's been so far off that it was it was ridiculous. <laughs> and so I've seen, it's happened to me. I've seen it happen to other people. But I think the problem in lies because people are more apt to believe something when it's tied to their socioeconomic status. Mm-hmm. And so if I give a person who has no hope that their situation is going to change, but I give them a word, quote unquote, that is tied to maybe their financial situation, they're more likely to believe that than to stick with scripture or to test what I just said and align it or, or try to see if it aligns with scripture. Because all I know is that my situation is bad when I go back home and I want to get out of this. So if you're telling me that God has spoken directly to you and that what you're saying, my situation is about to change, or if I do A, B, and C, I can get out of the situation, then I am more likely to believe that because in my mind that is the hope that I have, Mm -hmm. that my situation will change. Mm-hmm. And so I believe that that is where it gets dangerous. I've literally seen, I've seen this, and I'm not knocking it. I, I hope I hope I'm saying this with as much grace as possible, but I've literally seen it where people were told to do, if you do this, if you give this, or if you do this, or if you dance this way, if you sit around, or if you do whatever, then your situation will change. And then I just, my heart goes out for those who have believed it, done those things, and the situation didn't change. And I can see how that could even push someone away from the faith because you told me that God spoke to you and said this about me in particular. Mm -hmm. And so I believe that that is where the danger comes. And we have to, we have, we as believers, not just me as a pastor, but we as as believers have to be more accountable to what we listen to and what we believe. We have to really study and know the Bible for ourselves so that we don't fall victim to emotionalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the danger. And I always say that if the if what God gives you is contrary to what's in his word, then the what's in his word supersedes what you thought you heard. Because that, I mean you could think you hear a lot of things when you're high on emotion. And sometimes, you know, if I tell you, I mean, there's the, the whole general thing. Somebody here is going through something. Well, everybody's going through something. Um, it's in this season, you really have to pray. Well, should we be praying in every season? Um, just (laughs) like (laughs) this season, you really got to obey God. Shouldn't we obey him in every season? Like, you know, it's these things that are very general. But if you right. use your critical thinking, you'll say, hold on. Well, you know, and, and I heard uh, one gospel singer said for the next seven years, you're going to have 
constant breakthrough. And I'm like, that's not scripture. Wow. Many, you know, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> Jesus went through trouble. Paul went through trouble. I mean, if Jesus can suffer on a cross and he is God in the flesh, then how do we escape that tribulation? What makes us exempt from the suffering? Yeah. Sometimes I, I honestly have, in my preaching, I have to check myself because oftentimes I remind, I remind my people that there is a call to suffering. There's suffering that goes along with what we believe in the God that we, that we follow. He absolutely suffered. Um, and so we're not exempt from it. Our, it will happen in our lives. And so I, I would have to think if I'm hearing every week that it's time for my breakthrough, and but I'm seeing seasons and bouts of, 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 of deep suffering and lack, and I don't have what am I holding on to or, or am I even looking like am I or am I thinking am I thinking critically like I keep hearing that my breakthrough is coming but I'm still in this predicament that I've been in for years mm-hmm. and I've done what they've asked me to do I danced I spun around I ran around I've sowed the seed and I'm still in this particular situation mm-hmm how do I reconcile that in my mind? And I'm not here to say that that there's no such thing as the prophetic word. I'm not saying that someone can't give you a word that is accurate or that can warn you of something that is to come. But what I'm saying is that there has to be balance in what we teach. Mm-hmm. There just has to be balance in what we teach. And we as believers, you don't have to go to seminary to be able to think critically. Mm-hmm. You don't need a seminary education to be able to read your Bible. Do I encourage seminary? Yeah, of course. I think think it's a great it'll be a great experience for a lot of people. But I don't think that that's a requirement or a prerequisite for heaven. But what I what I do believe is that we we must keep things in the proper perspective and read our Bible, and we will see that the majority of the disciples didn't die peaceful deaths uh, at the bedside with their family and friends. Mm-hmm. Or they didn't. Most of the decide right. They were martyred. Mm-hmm. They and, were killed. Mm-hmm. And they didn't get their, I guess, quote unquote, best life. Now, in a sense, <laughs> right? They didn't get that. Their best life was was suffering for Jesus. For was suffering for the gospel. That mm-hmm. was their best life. Yeah, and that I, was their best life. Go ahead. And I always think, like, when you, I think a it plays on people's emotions because life is definitely hard. And when you're in a, in for a lot of African Americans there, there's still uh, a lot of, we have to fight through um, systemic injustice, um, um, personal, uh, the collapse of the family and all the things that that creates. You know, there's a ton of single mothers in church and they're going through a lot, you know, and unfortunately people prey on their despair and promise them a quick fix. You know, when you're 
in a tight bind, bind, you don't always think the most critically or you don't even have the emotional or the the drive to think critically because you're so drained. So you're coming to church like, God, I just need a release. And so many people, sometimes when they're crying, they're not even crying because of God. Church is the only place they could cry and nobody will ask them, you know, what's wrong. They can just kind of disguise it under the guise of Jesus touched me or, you know, that song was great. But in the inside, they're hurting and they're broken. And when somebody says, so a hundred dollars, if it's your last hundred, you're going to say, man, if this is going to turn my situation around tomorrow, then I'm going to do it. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And so it is easy to play play on the emotions of those who are going through it and who are, quote-unquote, suffering, especially in African-American context. Um, but I, I was thinking about this yesterday. Um, and so we, when I look at, here's how I see suffering. And, and so, and I know this goes off the topic a little bit, but, but here's, you mentioned suffering and, and how we should look at it. And, and if someone says, hey, if you do this, then your, your situation will change, your life will get better. But suffering is not necessarily a bad thing because here's what God does. God inserts uh, a gap between, I, I guess you could say, our actions and our consequences. Their actions and their consequences, but God puts a gap there. Mm-hmm. And so we look at God as a just God. But honestly, if God, if God executed justice right now, then none of us would be left standing mm-hmm. because we're all sinful. <laughs> and so if he really executed justice, who among us would be left standing? And so because we have our actions, because we are sinful, there are consequences to that. And mm-hmm. so there's this practical gap for all, uh, uh, for, for uh, this practical gap that I would say, and, and, and sometimes that gap is suffering. Mm-hmm. And what suffering does is suffering allows God to work grace into his people. Sometimes suffering is God's grace. Mm-hmm. Sometimes suffering is the alternative to death sometimes. And so I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I'm not saying that we don't give people hope because God can change things and situations, and he has, and I've seen him do it in my own life, but I don't think that we can we can make the prophetic word end all be all to change someone's situation, but we have to point people back to Jesus, point people back to the word of God and have them look at the full counsel of the scripture and see that there were many men and women in the Bible who went through seasons of extreme suffering, extreme poverty, uh, extremely hopeless situations. And so we have to start learning to, to hold on Jesus as our own hope and, and as our peace. Amen. I agree. And yeah. Yeah. That's my perspective on, on that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's critical because it, if you know, you're, if you, I mean, I feel like Jesus prepared us to suffer. If you suffer with me, you'll, you'll reign with me. Suffering is the gateway to glory. Um, and not glory necessarily how we think of it. But (laughs) I think our definitions just are off on a lot of things. And we've allowed the American dream to infiltrate our um, interpretation of scripture. And so we think 
the American dream is God's dream for us. And it is right, that's how we see it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's definitely not. <laughs> it's definitely not. So I think that's all important in understanding um, this movement. And I, I I've heard I've had people give me words that were accurate. That I mean. One dude, one day, uh, one guy who was a prophet told me something and I was like, oh, that's not going to happen. And it actually did happen like two weeks later. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that's, that was accurate. Um, and then I've had words that have been completely off it that have never happened. Um, so, um, I think that those two, I always tell people if it's true, it'll come to pass. If not, it won't. Um, and that's, it's, it's it's as simple as that, but don't put your hope in what somebody tells you. God may use someone, but don't make that the end all be all in your, in your walk with God. If it comes to pass, it comes to pass. If it doesn't, it doesn't keep your hope rooted in the authority of scripture. Scripture. Absolutely. I'm, I'm in agreement with you on that. So, um, knowing all of this about the Pentecostal movement. Um, I won't even go into tongues because that's a whole nother thing. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no problem. Um, but um, another, knowing all this background and our own experiences and the challenges we've seen, the good things we've seen in the Pentecostal movement and the bad things, how do you think we can best equip um, the charismatic movement in the area of apologetics? Here, here's what here's what I did, and, and then I'll give you I'll answer the question. Here's what I did in my personal experience for for the part of a vision of our church. We had a, a couple five pillars for a vision of our church, right? Mm-hmm. One of one of them, and the third one was for us was was apologetics, which was rooted in First Peter chapter three verse fifteen. Um, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so I think in the time that we live in, in the culture, the generation that we live in, the things that we have to compete against, the competing voices, we have to be so intentional regarding equipping the next generation with being able to defend their faith. And so for me personally, how do I do that as a pastor in every message that I preach? um, I would say, I would say every message, I'd say, 90% 90% of the messages that I preach, at some point in that message, I address current topics or things that are looming large in society. I have to. And so I do that in order to give my people a biblical worldview. Mm-hmm. I have to give them a biblical worldview that is rooted in Scripture, whether it's same-sex marriage, uh, whether it's abortion, whether it's social justice, all of those things we have to constantly address as as evangelists, as pastors, um, as teachers of the gospel, because we live in a generation who's not just going to take uh, the the pastor's word for face value. They're going to do their own research. Um, someone, a wise a wise woman once said, "Google is real." <laughs> <laughs> addressing the issues. Mm-hmm. We have to give people the biblical worldview, the, the proper perspective on how they should look at the things that are happening in our culture 
and look at it from a biblical standpoint. And we have to be able to equip them because these people are going into the classroom. These people are going um, into the workplace. These people are going uh, into restaurants. These people are getting on airplanes. Uh, these people are going to the family reunion. Um, these people are going into the hair salon and into the barbershop. And these conversations are taking place. And so we have to be able to equip the people of God um, with the proper perspective on the issues that are prevalent in our society today. And so we have to be uh, intentional. From a, as a pastor, I have to preach it from the pulpit. I have to address things from the pulpit, whether it be before the message or after the, after the message. We have to start bringing in people like yourself to teach on apologetics outside of a Sunday morning setting where you take a group of people and you teach them apologetics and you teach them what they know or what they need to know about their faith. Um, that's important. Uh, mediums like Jew 3, we have to push those things um, um, in our churches uh, and, into, uh, uh, and, and put them before other believers so that we are equipped moving forward um, in the time that we live in because people want answers, and we have the only solution to the issues that plague our society. Amen. We have to be intentional. And I think for those who are listening that are more reformed or have 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 usually looked down at those who in the Pentecostal movement, you're never going to you're never going to be able to get them to trust what you, or listen to what you have to say if all you do on social media all the time is throw stones at them. Um Exactly. So that's why I've, I've somewhat tried to walk gently uh, while while we're having this dialogue because I don't necessarily think that those who are somewhat we would deem as extremists in the charismatic movement, I don't necessarily think that there are bad intentions there. I don't think that you have people who are purposely... Uh, and intentionally leading people into false doctrine. Sometimes I think it just comes from a lack of understanding and a lack of knowledge of the scriptures. Mm -hmm. And so I think we have to approach it gingerly, but we have to be adamant in approaching it at all. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I just think that our approach is just as important as the information that we approach them with. Exactly. And uh so so that's I think that that's paramount mm -hmm. because just like you would engage I mean these are some strategies for I feel like talking to somebody in the charismatic movement that I would would share number one um it attacking in, in the charismatic move in the especially in the black charismatic in the black church period there's a close um tie with the leadership pastor and pulpit are like in, in some of these cases, you have to understand that in in cases of people with single mothers or that didn't have a father, their pastor stepped in. Their pastor right. has been at doctor's appointments. Their pastor has been um, there when their child died. Their pastor has been very present. So when you come in and you say, oh, well, let me correct your pastor. 
They're going to trust what their pastor did for them over what you say about him. So attacking him or just blanketly throwing something out there uh, without understanding that, that there's a relationship that's been cultivated. It's just like you saying something about somebody's family member. You know, even if you're right, right. it's going to cause tension because, hey, no, that's blood. You don't you don't come you don't come for blood. Like, <laughs> And so how you would approach somebody, how you would want somebody to approach you. And this is something I'm learning. I'm I'm not an expert at it. By f- I, I'm probably the worst at it. Um. So, <laughs> but <laughs> what I've noted, what I've learned from my failures in communicating with people is that attacking their leadership and saying, "Let me correct him," is the worst way to go because there's an emotional connection there, and there's deep ties, and and people he's been there for them more than you ever probably will be. Um, and so you have Here's to be what careful. I've never understood why do we, or we can't first attack someone publicly and expect a sensible response. Mm-hmm. And so my thought process around it, when I see pastors who plaster another pastor's name in the public, or they call them a false teacher, or they make YouTube videos or they have conferences and they're calling people out by name. I don't know where the wisdom is in that, but I think that, like you said, you would approach someone how you want to be approached. And so why wouldn't they approach them in private first Mm -hmm. as opposed to calling someone out on a grand scale? And so I start to wonder, what are your motives? Is your motives just to blast this person or is your motive to win your brother? Mm-hmm. If my motive is to win my brother, there's no way in my right mind that I think uh, calling him out before thousands of people in a public forum or platform is going to win him over. Mm-hmm. But just maybe if I approach him privately, maybe if I approach him behind the scenes, maybe maybe if I take uh, the less scenic route to getting to my brother that I can win him over mm-hmm. and we can have a dialogue. Mm-hmm. And so I sometimes wonder what the motive is when we call out our charismatic brothers and sisters and we and we try to put them on front street mm-hmm. regarding their doctrine. Mm-hmm. I think everyone deserves a chance to be approach with gentleness and with respect, just like it says in first Peter chapter three, verse 15. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that one of the, my, my second, um, my second takeaway from my experience in dealing with people who may have some things that are a little off is building genuine relationships and introducing them to authors. And, and also hearing them and let them help you in your life as well. Cause I mean, just because they're off in one area, they're sometimes their, their orthopraxy is, 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 is solid. Like they walk the walk. And so in their areas that right. they're strong, let them help you. And then it's like this, you're mutually sharing. It's not like you're a project that I have to, you know, I, you're a person right. I have to fix. If you address it like that, then you're going to, this is not going to be a helpful relationship. But 
we are called to sharpen each other. They're your brother and sister in, in the faith. So, hey, let's build this relationship. You help me and I help you. Let me introduce you to some people you've never heard before. Let me buy you some books and let's talk about these things. But but you're not my project. I'm not just trying to help you. I'm not trying to change you. But I'm open to having conversation with you. And let's grow together. And I don't see myself as better than you. Um, or that I know it all. We are both. I think that. I think that you are dead on and very profound and building relationship. It should be uh, building a relationship should be the focal point. I, I think that you are 100% accurate in saying that we can't take an approach of because I am conservative evangelical that I know more than you mm-hmm. recipe for disaster. Exactly. So I think the two biggest takeaways, I think, are being open and building relationships and just don't attack people's leadership. You you get people familiar enough with the truth, um, then they start to think about things on their own. But don't don't let don't lead with that (laughs) Uh, because you're 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 going to you're not going to get far. So um, building relationships is paramount, building eating and and. And I always say, if you if you challenge somebody or you won't feel like you need to correct somebody, be be and don't shy away from that. You have to have the courageous conversations. But it's not that I just throw some information to you and walk off. Be <laughs> giving the truth and love is not about just tone. It's about being committed to the process of the person. Wow! Wow! Paul is it, he talks to those in Corinth and he was like, well, yeah, that made you mad. I'm glad it made you mad, but I hope it made you so mad you changed. But Paul was committed to the growth of the Corinthian church. He wasn't just giving them a hard letter and walking off. He was like, I got to give you this hard letter, but I'm going to still be here when the dust settles. That was so funny. I read, uh, if you're referencing uh, 2 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 7, that is exactly it. And he, his letter put them in a position of godly grief, mm-hmm. which which is what led to the repentance. And he was like, I'm glad that you grieve. <laughs> I'm glad that you're grieving. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that I wrote this letter. And I'm glad that I wrote you a hard letter mm-hmm. because that was my intention. And so I think you're dead on with that, with that analogy and Paul as the example of the approach that we should take. Mm-hmm. Because it's not yeah. like the same man who wrote Speak the Truth in Love also wrote a hard letter. So it can't be just about tone or making everything sound nice, but it, it I think it's love is about a commitment to stay. So yeah. the truth and love, some people say stuff that's nice and just walk off. Um, but the truth and <laughs> love is a commitment to be there. Even when you don't accept the truth that I presented to you at first, because some people will accept the truth. If you're committed to their process. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. You're so right. You're so right. I wholeheartedly agree with you. So don't quit on people. And I heard TD Jake say, uh, yesterday. <laughs> That's funny. Cause a lot of people don't have, but never, never throw someone away. He was talking about Paul and Barnabas and John Mark and how later he said, bring me John Mark for he's profitable for me now. 
And so even though you may have some tension with people um, at, at one point, um, or you may think, man, they not really solid. I can't really vibe with them. Don't, don't throw them away. Cause at w- when they're converted <laughs> or not necessarily converted, cause they are Christians, but when they're, a, when you help them or engage them with, uh, more truth or when you help just equip them, because we're all off in some area that just might be a weak area for them. When you help equip them, they may be more profitable um, in the area of apologetics later on. So never give up on people, never throw anybody away and um, be committed to their process, just like you would want them to be committed to yours and lace everything you say with grace and truth. I, I, I agree with you. I was reading, I read the same article referencing around uh, regarding Russell Moore. He said, I would, uh, looking back, I would err more so on the side of, of, of mercy and kindness towards people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so mercy, mercy, uh, one of the byproducts of that is, is patient. And mm-hmm. so we have to be patient and, and committed to the process, like you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amen. Well, I think this has been a helpful and rich conversation. Um, thank you, John. I really appreciate you uh, chatting with me today for our uh, third install- installment of the Heart of Jude 3. And I think it'll be helpful for those who hear it. Oh, man, it's been my pleasure. I appreciate you having me on. This is a great forum. I think many big things are coming for for you. It's so needed. I can't stress that enough that it's so needed uh, for ministries like Jude 3 um, to be in existence. And so I think this is great timing. Um, I just want to encourage all of your listeners to do whatever you can to support Jude 3. Tell somebody else about it. Uh, tell the people in your church about it. Uh, like it on Facebook, uh, uh, follow her on Twitter, whatever you got to do, because um, I think this is so vital for the time that we live in, and it is so relevant uh, for right now. But I thank you, and I appreciate you uh, for having me on, Lisa. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. You can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com backslash podcast. You can follow us on iTunes by searching Jude 3 Project. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Jude 3 Project, on Instagram at Jude 3 Project, and on Facebook at facebook.com. Um, backslash Jude 3 project and remember you can donate on our site so if this um, this podcast and this ministry is a blessing to you help support us financially um, by going on our website at Jude3project.com and hitting the donate tab um, and donating consider donating to us thank you so much remember at the Jude 3 project we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it